Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Good morning. I'm Kyle McKee, and this is Fordham Conversations. On today's show, we're talking television. TV has produced hundreds of programs and has led to a long debate over which shows can claim the title of the best of all time. That's where my guest comes in. Matt Zoller-Seitz is a film and television critic and the co-author of TV The Book. Two experts picked the greatest American shows of all time. Matt, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Yep, happy to be here. Wonderful. So, you know, this book covers everything from The Sopranos to SpongeBob SquarePants. Yes. How do you even start? Well, that was the big question that Alan and I asked each other when we first contemplated doing this book, because television, you know, it would be daunting enough if we were trying to do a similarly comprehensive book about film. Um, But television has another complication, which is what a movie is a movie and unless somebody goes back and cuts 10 minutes or adds 20 the movie is the thing that it is and it doesn't change whereas television is always changing one series could run anywhere from 10 to 200 or 300 episodes depending on what kind of show you're talking about and it changes in style the cast changes the themes change the look changes everything changes so it's massive it's massive it's ridiculous and it helped that Alan and I have different areas of interest, and there are some things that he's super familiar with that I'm not, and vice versa. So we, I think we could do together a much more comprehensive and authoritative volume than either of us could do on our own. And your co-author, Alan Seppenwall, how did you get involved with him? Alan and I worked at the Star-Ledger in Newark, New Jersey. And uh, I started there in 1995. I was 26 years old. And I'd just come from Dallas, Texas, where I was a film critic for the Dallas Observer, and they made me a popular culture critic. And I wrote about everything from film and television and books to music and theater and art exhibitions. It was crazy that I was supposed to be an authority in all of those things in retrospect. But Alan came in a year later. He was fresh out of uh, college, and he had done this website uh, devoted to NYPD Blue and had gotten the attention of a lot of people in the industry. And he was, uh, he had been an intern uh, not too long before that, and I was uh, a little threatened by Alan because I was supposed to be the hot young Turk, and here was an, you know, a younger Turk, of course, who had suddenly appeared. And one of our editors got the bright idea to put us on the TV beat together, and we sat next to each other. We sat at adjacent cubicles in the features department, and uh, I liked him right away. Um, he was a big, tall, by his own admission, very loud person. Um, and, uh, but we talked all the time, like to the point where other people in the newsroom found us incredibly annoying. And, uh, he's <laughs> been one of my closest friends for over 20 years. And I left the paper in 2006, but we continued to communicate. And almost every time we'd get together at some point, one of us would say, gee, I wish there was some way that we could work together again. So over and above really anything else, this book is an attempt to allow me and Alan to work together again. That's great. And you can really, in the beginning, you could see the um, G-chat between you two, and it's really a lot of back and forth and debate. Yeah, yeah. The the part where we're trying to determine the uh, best show of all time, we had a five-way tie at number one, and we decided to just argue it out. Yes, that's the only way to do it. Yeah, so the transcript of that opens uh, opens the uh, the Pantheon section of the book. TV the book is, it's billed as, you know, your guide to the greatest uh, American television shows of all time. There is a main section that is that, 
But there are other sections of the book as well. But the main section, which is called The Pantheon, is a list of 100 sitcoms and dramas dating back to 1950. And they are what Alan and I consider to be the best television series, the, the most significant, the most interesting, the most striking. Picked by two experts. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I don't want to oversell that too much. I mean, a different set of experts would pick different shows, obviously. And, we, and we're very careful to say that in the introduction, that... This is Alan and Matt's list. This is not supposed to be like the Ten Commandments brought down from on high. Um, we never in a million years would, would claim to be that. We would ideally like for other people to do books more or less like this and, and see how how they would rank the shows and what they would put on and what they would leave out and what they would elevate and what they would drop. So we devised a ranking system, and uh, it was five. There were five categories, uh, innovation, influence, uh, consistency, performance slash characterization, where we considered the the depth and quality of the characters and the performances of the actors in those roles, and um, storytelling slash filmmaking, and that and that was uh, uh, it's interesting because those last two categories were sort of splitting up two aspects of writing and considering them in tandem with two other artistic skills, acting and filmmaking. The um, Storytelling slash filmmaking, you know, the storytelling part of it is a writing part, which is how is the story told? Is it, how is it told? How well is it told? Is there anything unusual about it? Is it a, is an example of something that had never been done before or an example of a very classical way of telling a story, but, but at an exceptionally high level? Um, and then performance slash characterization. The characterization part of that is how well were the characters written? It's Absolutely. not, you know, that's that part of it's not the actors. So anyway, those five categories. And we had a list of about 200 shows that we considered that we put together a master list. And we eventually winnowed it down to we wanted to get to an even 100, but we ended up with I think it was like 138 or something because there were ties. Yes. And you could have 10 points in every one of those five categories for each of us. So. The maximum score that a show could get from either of us was 100. A per that would be a perfect score. No show got a perfect score. Um, but then when we saw how many ties we had, we decided to add a sixth category, which was peak. Yes. And uh, peak is a very subjective category. That that one said that one juxtaposed the shows in that top 138 against each other, not against other shows that were not on the list. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't because we've gotten some complaints from people saying, how can you say that at its peak, uh, 30 Rock only only was a four? And yeah. it's like, I'm not saying it's a four in relation to the rest of television history. I'm saying, you know, the peak is a four relation in relation to the greatest shows in the history of television. Absolutely. And there weren't very many that I gave tens to. Um, and this part of it was unexpectedly fun for me because I've been I've been uh, very very resistant towards any kind of ranking, any kind of hierarchical system in art. Uh, it always bugged me a little bit. I, I always much preferred uh, approaches like David Thompson's Biographical Dictionary of Film, where it's just arranged. You know, he's writing about important people in the history of cinema, and they're arranged alphabetically. Yes. Or Leonard Maltin's Home Video Guide, which is also alphabetical. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Phil Hardy wrote these wonderful books uh, divided by genre. It was the uh, the Overlook Encyclopedia series. It was the Overlook Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, the Western Horror, and so on. And those are chronological by year. You know, it would start in like 1900 or something, and it would continue up into the present day, whatever the publication date was. And I really like those because they don't assign numerical values to art, but at the same time they 
they can be very comprehensive and they seem very um, democratic, you know, yes. in the way they're arranged. But people don't like that. Mm -hmm. Generally, I think ultimately, I think people like to argue. People like to argue, and they like to compare their own their own mental list to whatever you put down. Absolutely, on paper. and every, every TV show affects people differently. It does, it does, and and uh, to me, I don't really tend to get my back up over a list that anyone makes because I don't see it as a threat to my own critical sensibility at all because it's going to be different from whatever somebody else has and uh and also i just think the numbers are kind of just there to stir discussion that's really all it is i've been talking with film and tv critic matt zoller sites the co-author of tv the book two experts pick the greatest american shows of all time Laura Littman from the New York Times on the back of your book says this book is much more fun if you disagree with the authors. Right? I think that's true. Yes. I think that's true, but I would take it one step further and say, you know, I came in on the train here to the radio station. I live in Bay Ridge, so it was a bit of a bit of a hike. And I brought this book with me, uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum's Movies as Politics. And Rosenbaum is one of my favorite critics. He's somebody who I've kind of been aspiring to be my entire life in certain ways, and I'm never going to get there because he's one of the greats. Um but he does, one of the things he does is he messes with the typical approach towards criticism, which is he very rarely does a straight review where you're just saying, what's the movie about? Are the performances any good? Is the story any good? Jonathan Rosenbaum doesn't do that. He he will do, not only will he delve very deep into the style of the film, but also the politics of the film and how the politics of the film are expressed by the style of the film, which is something almost nobody does in mainstream criticism anymore. And he'll also do these things that he calls shotgun weddings, where he will consider two films that were in release at more or less the same time. He'll review them together and compare them, even if they outwardly seem to have nothing in common at all, and he just does it for the fun of it. Very interesting. And, and we tried to do that. Uh, there are a few places where we do that in the book, where we took things out of order, and uh, we threw them together in an essay just to compare them because there was something about them that we that we believed could support a comparison. Like, for example, Alan compared uh, Friends and the Golden Girls. Okay. Which were shows from different eras. Um, but the thing, the commonality that he found between them was both of them opened up the sitcom to main groupings of characters who were not normally served on television. And in the case of Friends, it was young 20-somethings in, in a major city. There, there hadn't really been a big show that had tried to just explore the lives of young, upper-middle-class, 20-something people. And, of course, these are ridiculously good-looking versions of those kinds of people and their and their you know their apartments are you know bigger than some mansions on yes. other shows i mean it's a completely ridiculous millions sitcom. of dollars it would cost to it's live insane in one of these it's completely insane but nevertheless that was something that networks had not really done you know they hadn't really done anything quite like that and and to tr basically try to make a a 20 something seinfeld that was kind of what they were going for and uh, the golden girls it was a, a group of women over 50 you know, and some some of them who were uh, at least one of whom was a senior citizen. Yes. Uh, so Alan Alan uh, talked about those sort of the significance of those uh, on the industry and what the industry took from both of them. So it's not all straight considerations. I would say most of the pantheon is that, but uh, not all of it. Um, and then we have sections on the best television movies, the best miniseries. And we have a section. Actually, my favorite section of the book is not the pantheon, but a section called a certain regard which is where Alan and I put all the odds and ends uh, that, for whatever reason, didn't make it into the Pantheon. Maybe it was an issue of 
consistency. Um, maybe it was simply too short lived. Um, whatever the reason, sometimes it was just too weird. It was a little too weird. Or uh, maybe Alan saw the show and I didn't, or I saw the show and Alan didn't. Um, and that's a place where you'll find things like Chuck and um, Samurai Jack Absolutely. and uh, Cop Rock, which I love, unironically love. I think that's a good <laughs> show. I'm actually on a crusade to rehabilitate the um, reputation of Cop Rock. When it came out, it was a punchline, and it was on everybody's worst list of the year. And if you go back and watch it, the entire season, there was only one season, it was on YouTube. You're going to look at this thing and go, this is actually kind of cool. Okay. It's a musical. It's a, it's basically NYPD Blue with musical numbers. Yeah, the I'll first episode starts one. with a with a group of of uh, African Americans being rousted by the cops as drug dealers, and they're rapping about police brutality. And then it goes into uh, a courtroom scene where one of the guys is being tried on some criminal charge. I can't remember exactly what it is, but the jury comes out, and the judge says, "Would you uh, can you t can the foreman tell us the jury's verdict?" And he says, "Guilty, Your Honor." And then you hear this gospel organ he's <laughs> like guilty and they sing this whole gospel number called guilty oh that sounds it's incredible it's incredible and it's funny because this came out in 1990 and uh i think people were just too i think american audiences were just their minds just detonated when this thing came on it was like you can't do this this is stupid this is just stupid but now we've had things like glee yes and crazy ex-girlfriend and flight of the concords and it doesn't seem so ridiculous yeah the tv musical you know yeah 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 we I, I think there's a lot i think that if something like cop rock appeared today or it would it would be taken on its own terms i don't think that it would necessarily get good reviews like who knows but i don't think there would have been this automatic pushback and that's another thing that's kind of fun about the book is the chance to look back through television history and affirm two things that i think are really important one is television was always producing interesting work artistically or politically or dramatically significant work. Um, it wasn't something that just started in the late 1990s. There's a very um, narcissistic sort of ridiculous assumption on the part of a lot of, I think, younger critics, I hate to say it, but it's mostly younger critics, that the shows that they watched when they were growing up are the point when television started to be interesting. That's, that's not true. And, and I think every generation makes that mistake at first, but hopefully we grow out of it. Um, there is artistically significant work that was produced from the very beginnings of TV, and we've included some of them in the book. Um, that's one thing that we wanted to demolish. And the other thing is um, this idea that television shows, at a certain point, they, they're past their sell-by date. They're not interesting anymore because they're old. Because the values that we hold now, and I say when I say we, I mean basically secular, urban, liberal-slash-progressive people, you know, that's a lot of a, a lot of critics. Um, we look down our nose at older shows because we say, oh, they're so sexist. Oh, they're so racist. Oh, they're so male-centered. Oh, they're so uh, nostalgic about small towns. I mean, whatever our complaint is, like we see through this show and we feel smug and superior to this show. But there's actually something still interesting about a lot of these shows if we can look past our own need to feel superior to it. And I Love Lucy, which is one of our top sh 10 shows, is one of my favorite examples of that. Because that's a show that a lot of people have kind of written off now because the character of Lucy is um, routinely, she's she's the butt of the joke. You know, she's she's always has some ridiculous scheme and it fails and her husband says, Lucy, why you do this? You know, <laughs> of course. Um, 
And uh, the the not just the women, but the men as well are extremely stereotypical in their gender roles and uh, all of that. But the story of I Love Lucy as a production is an incredibly feminist story. I mean, this is a woman who, in tandem with her husband, uh, Desi Arnaz, seized control of the means of production. And they, they founded Desi Lou Productions, without which television, as we know it, would not exist. And she controlled that image. That was what she wanted to do as a comedian. She wanted to do something in the spirit of Abbott and Costello, the Marx Brothers, W.C. Fields, that kind of thing. That's what she did, and from start to finish, um, she ran the show. And uh, and I think that's a great that's a great triumph. And to me, that transcends any sort of image of Lucy as as a as a, a, a helpless sort of fool who's who learns a lesson at the end of each episode. Influence Lucy has got to be up there. Well, Lucy and I actually said in the in the piece that uh, Alan and I wrote that. Um, Every independent television production company should have a statue of Desi and Lucy in their lobby, and they should pray to it every morning like it's a shrine. Because they would not, I mean, they, 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 it was so important what they did. One of the things they did was at a time when television cameras and often broadcast live, and they weren't even keeping records for the first few years of TV, unless they pointed a film camera at the monitor, which is where we get these things called kinescopes, which you can see online, which are very smudgy and blurry. And um, Lucy and Desi made that made I Love Lucy on 35mm black and white film of the sort that you would use to shoot a feature film. And although they had no way of knowing it, the uh, the image quality is, is as good as anything that can be produced with high-definition cameras right now because it's film. They had a studio audience, but they were far back, and they would break the sets apart and move the cameras in to get exactly the shot they wanted. And if you look at how that show is directed, it's brilliantly directed. And Lucy was pretty strict on her demands, you know, before starting the show. They wanted the show to be in Los Angeles instead of New York, which yes. is where TV was typically filmed at the time. They did. It was set in New York but shot in Los Angeles. And um, partly uh, that was partly just they didn't want to go to New York. They were comfortable in L.A. But there was another reason, which is that so much television production was being done in New York that if they were shooting it in Los Angeles, it meant that there was going to be less interference which is very crafty and and as a result partly as a result of the incredible success of Desi Lou Productions more and more television production moved to Los Angeles in the 50s to the point where it became the dominant place where shows were made definitely and a lot of people say that the final kind of nail in the coffin at that time for New York was when Johnny Carson moved out yeah that was pretty much it that was like yeah. give it up give it up and from that point on uh, there were a lot of the great New York shows of the 70s were actually shot in LA including Hill Street Blues a lot of these uh New York shows were shot on backlots, on studio backlots. Yes. And you can tell. Most <laughs> of the time you can tell. Definitely. It looks nothing <laughs> like the real thing. Well, yeah, and it's really funny. You, if, you, if you watch enough television and movies, you start to recognize certain sets that are used over and over again, like the, the New York set on Seinfeld, which has been you know used. Who even knows how many shows have used that set over and over? And uh, Melody Ranch, which is where everything from uh, Bonanza and the Dukes of Hazard to Deadwood were filmed. If you've if you've seen enough television westerns and sort of country kind of shows, you you recognize the hills, you recognize the trees, and uh, the main town set in in um, the Universal lot, the small town set which mm -hmm. was used in all three Back to the Future yes, films, yes, the clock tower, the clock tower, oh. all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's that's funny, and uh, you you see that. I think it might have been used in Groundhog Day as well. Um, okay. But it's been and and in a, an episode of Columbo directed by Steven Spielberg. Yes. I remember I watched that as research for the book, and I went, "That's the t that's the that's the same town from yeah. Back to the Future." And I think the first Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, too, I yeah. think they probably have used that set more than once. On <laughs> oh yeah, Zone. nothing new. The recycling is fun. Yes. So, in the introduction of the book, you say how 
TV before kind of the 1980s was more of an advertising, you know, medium and that a lot of people think that it wasn't really an artistic expression before yeah. then. Do you think all in the family changed that? I think it did, but I should with the but I should say with the caveat that neither of neither of us are saying that there was no art made before the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was always art being made, but but it became increasingly easier. It was never easy, but it became increasingly less difficult to have a vision as te- as television aged. You know, it was easier in the 60s than it was in the 50s, easier in the 70s. You know, I would say the 50s, the 60s, and on through about the mid-70s were, were quite restrictive for most people who were trying to make art. And that's why there was contempt for television among people who made uh, books uh, and, and, and films and, and uh, even s- certain kinds of pop music. They sneered at television, and I think they had a good reason to most of the time. A lot of it was garbage. It was just stuff in between the ads. Even then, though, you'd get things like The Twilight Zone. Or the original Star Trek, um, and uh, shows that you know we don't write about in the book because they're not sitcoms or dramas, but things like you know Ernie Kovacs, his 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 uh, variety series plural were very innovative. Um, but uh, I think it got easier. I think it started to get easier, and sitcoms paved the way in the '70s. Norman Lear, in particular, with All in the Family. Maud, The Jeffersons, Good Times, um, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. He was doing amazing, innovative work, and he was in, enabling other people to do that kind of work. And then I think in the 80s, the dramas started to get more interesting, beginning with Hill Street Blues, which debuted in 1981. And then in the 80s, it was a very fertile period for dramas um, and comedy dramas. Like, I don't know how you would classify Moonlighting. It was a drama some of the time, a romantic comedy some of the time, a sitcom some of the time, a mystery sometimes, and sometimes it was kind of a heavy-duty uh, downer drama. Do you think that HBO networks where you have to pay for subscriptions kind of, do you think that had an effect? Yeah, it definitely did. I de- and I covered, uh, just as a reporter, as an industry reporter, I got to see for a fact that it affected them because... When cable shows started to become more and more artistically interesting, um, they wanted the people who made these shows wanted to submit them for Emmy consideration. They were told no, um, the Emmys are for broadcast networks, and so they they had the Cable Ace Awards, which is kind of like sitting at the kids' table. And if you ever watch the Larry Sanders show, they they joke about the Cable Ace Awards because they know it's just a slap in the face. <laughs> and finally, the cable shows were allowed to compete, and they started to win. They started to win awards left and right. They won them for, you know, for the show itself, for writing, for direction, for acting, for everything you can win an award for. And it got to the point where the cable shows were dominating the Emmys. And the people who were still working on broadcast networks started to complain about it. And we used to hear, as television critics and reporters, we used to hear network heads complaining at press tour where they previewed the new shows out west and also, sometimes in phone calls to us, I would have, like, network executives call, and they would read a positive review that I gave to some new thing on HBO or Showtime and say, do you realize the constraints we're under here? <laughs> we can't we can't have profanity. We can't have nudity. We can't have graphic violence. We can't play around too much with the way we tell the story. Every act of an hour-long drama has to be, like, 12 and a half minutes or whatever the exact running time was to make room for ads. Yes. Um, we can't tell long-form serialized stories because we have to keep the audience level high. Uh, the ratings will go down if we demand too much of people, and it's like you should cut us a break. Like you got to basically, they were asking us to grade network shows on a curve. Okay. And um, 
I didn't want to do that. I don't think most. I don't think most critics wanted to do that. I think we wanted show the shows to get better and more adventurous, and they did, but not because of anything that we said, but because the advent of the DVR and DVDs meant that people had a way to watch an entire season of a show at once or to easily catch up on an episode that they had missed. I think that made all the difference. And now that streaming is available, yes, I think an increasing number of people time shift shows. Um, and more and more and more people don't even watch shows on an actual television. They watch it on their iPad or their phone. Yes, and it's the whole notion of binge watching, watching it all in one sitting. Yes, you know? yes, and, and I think that's a tremendous benefit for shows that are taking structural risks with the way they tell their stories. Like um, I was watching the... F- I think it was the fifth season of Breaking Bad, and that was the first season of the show where I thought, okay, the effect of Netflix is being felt on places other than Netflix. Because if you look at the way that that, the, that last, that fifth season, which is technically a season five and six, it's like too many seasons. Yeah. The way those episodes are structured, are it's like they're very, very daring. They feel like really radical cliffhangers. Like there was one episode that ends with, Aaron Paul's character, Jesse, breaking into Walter White's house and uh, trashing the place. And the last shot is him pouring gasoline on the rug and screaming. Remember that, yes. And it cut in the middle of his scream. And then the next episode picked up, and we weren't with Jesse. We were we were with, I think, Walter. And we didn't get back to Jesse for half an hour. Oh, my goodness. Now, and people who watched that show live, they had to wait a week to figure out what happened to Jesse, what happened in that house. Yes. But if you're watching it um, later with all the episodes available at once, you it doesn't feel like that long a wait. I think they were looking ahead. And I think, like, Mad Men was looking ahead to to Blu-ray and to streaming because that was one of the first dramas I've ever seen where they seemed to not care at all about ending an act with an image or a moment that said, now we're going to go to a commercial. There were many, many scenes on Mad Men where they would simply, they would go up to a certain point, they would stop, and then the commercial would come on. And there was no rhyme or reason to why they ended there except that, you know, the t- whatever it is, 12 minutes are up. And do you feel like a lot of the shows that Netflix and Hulu are producing kind of have the potential to be among these top 100 someday? Oh, Sure. We didn't consider any shows that hadn't finished their run. That was one okay. of the rules that we set down. If you wanted to be considered for the Pantheon, the show had to have, had to have finished its run. And that posed some problems with shows that had been off the air for a long time, but then suddenly there was a new season announced, like, for example, The X-Files. Yes. And so we, in most cases, we considered if the break has been sufficiently long that it feels like its own thing with the same name. We're going to, you know, like X-Files, we're considering only the initial run of the mm-hmm. show. We discussed the movies and the and the uh, the new mini season that recently ran in, you know, within that essay, but we're not, we're not considering it for purposes mm-hmm. of the ranking. The only exceptions to that rule were in the Pantheon were South Park and The Simpsons. Absolutely. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, well, because the feeling was, all right, well, I guess technically South Park and The Simpsons are a work in progress, but The Simpsons is going on, like, what is it, 28 seasons now? And Something Sar- like that, yeah. And South Park is 20. Yeah. So, um, as Alan puts it, uh, that's a big enough sample size to be able to make a consideration. Definitely. <laughs> you know? And me personally, The Simpsons is probably my favorite show out there, but I cannot watch it after season 15 
Yes. It's just, it's a totally different show. It is, but I think it's a good show. I think it's a very good show. I think there was a period right around it, somewhere between uh, seasons 15 and 18, when the quality took a nosedive. Mm -hmm. But then it started to come back up. And I think there are, every single season of that show, even now, there are episodes that I think stand, can stand tall alongside the best stuff they did early on. But think about what you just said, that the show started, that you lost interest after season 15. Yeah. 15 of The Simpsons. Very little shows. The Simpsons, depending on where you re where you consider the cutoff point to be. Let's say you're one of these mercenary people who thinks that The Simpsons was no good after season seven. Seven seasons is still longer than almost any other show has ever run. Absolutely. And if you think the season that The Simpsons was good until season nine or ten or twelve or thirteen... And I think they, like you, I think they were con continuing to produce great work for f up until season 15. 15 years is longer than almost any show has ever run continuously in the history of TV. There's only a handful of shows that have run longer than 15 seasons, like Law & Order, Gunsmoke, South Park. We have a lot of those shows represented in the book. But I thought there also needed to be space for the the kid who sits in the back of the class and has no idea what's going on, but they're drawing brilliant cartoons in their notebook. And that's a show like A Moonlighting. Very good. You know, yes. or or Miami Vice, which I think Miami Vice ran for five seasons, and I think only the first one and a half seasons were were great, were great, and they continued to do magnificent episodes all the way till the end. But it was a very self indulgent show, and often really silly show. Um, but the look of it was so brilliant and so influential, and what the show stood for was so great that I counted as a problem child, a brilliant problem child show. Absolutely. You know. Yes. Um. Like Don Draper, a lot of these shows are Don Draper. Mm -hmm. Half the time you don't know where they are, and 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 they're or they're causing you enormous distress. But then mm -hmm. once in a while they come through with the carousel pitch. Yes, and that's why you keep them around. I would like to thank my guest Matt Zoller Sites. TV the book is available on Amazon and where books are sold. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter and catch up on shows you missed with our weekly podcast. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Kyle McKee.